All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, thankful to get to be with you. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us at River City. Man, if there's anything that we can do to uh, serve you, help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to be able to do that. Come find me or somebody else afterwards. Uh, we're really nice people. We'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here. So uh, excited to continue walking our way through our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've been gone, or if like me, you barely can remember what you had for breakfast, let alone what some pastor talked about last week, let me catch you up on where we're at in the story and we'll, uh, we'll dive in together. So uh, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped plant about five years before he writes this this letter. It's a church that was planted in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth, which is kind of at this really strategic location um, map-wise, right on this part of, of Greece that connects the, the Greek mainland to the peninsula at the end. And so its location made it this ideal port city that basically controlled east-west trade between uh, Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was really strategic and important and very wealthy, but, but also it was a new city. See, Rome had conquered this city totally destroyed it about 200 years prior to the writing of this letter, and they let it sit desolate for a while, and then they decided it was about time after a century that they replant the city with people loyal to Rome and people excited about Roman ideals, and so they settled the city about 100 years prior to this letter with mainly with people who were freed slaves and former army veterans, and, and so Corinth was not only this incredibly wealthy port city, it was a new city, and so it was full of people who were making a name for themselves and were making an identity for themselves and we're basically starting new lives. And, and that's really important because there was this upwardly mobile mindset, this upwardly mobile aspiration that basically consumed everyone and everything in the city. See, if you lived in Corinth in the first century, the thing that you were absolutely most concerned about was climbing the social ladder or maintaining your place at the top of that ladder. It's the thing absolutely everyone cared the most about. And tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth, as we've read so far, was no exception. You see, what becomes painfully clear as you read the letter is that their, their highest priority was not God's glory and the advancing of the gospel. Their highest priority was very clearly their own glory and the advancing of their own social status in the city. And that was causing all kinds of problems. We've already seen it was totally distorting the way that they viewed leaders and leadership in general. It was leading to all kinds of fighting and division in the church. It was leading towards people, instead of being gracious and forgiving towards one another, they're, they're, they're suing each other in small claims courts over stupid stuff, instead of being able to even deal with little problems in among themselves. And it was resulting in them not only approving of all kinds of sexual immorality, but, but practicing all kinds of sexual immorality themselves. And we're not even halfway through the book, people, right? <laughs> like, we just started the list. It's not going well for them in Corinth. You see, while they may have believed the message of the gospel, their lives and their community were not being ongoingly formed by the person and the work of Jesus you see, and instead their lives and their community were continuing to be formed by the values and the ethos of the culture around them. We've seen that in all these different ways so far. And as we study chapter 7 this week and next week, a little two-parter here, we're going to see how the, the way that they viewed marriage and singleness were yet two more areas where they were just being formed and conformed to the world around them instead of being transformed by the 
person and the work of Jesus being transformed by the good news of the gospel. You see, instead of seeing marriage and singleness ultimately as different avenues to glorify God, you see, they saw them primarily as kind of uh, social status puzzle pieces. Like everything else, they were merely one more piece in the puzzle of of ultimately being about their own self-gratification and self-promotion. The Corinthian-formed mindset was leading them not only to misunderstand, but to misuse both singleness and marriage. And so as we study this morning, we're going to see Paul's Paul's correcting both of these false ways of thinking. And what I want to show you as we study God's word this morning is that God calls us to see both marriage and singleness as good gifts, as good callings from him, but not as ultimate gifts, not as ultimate callings. You see, instead, we're meant to receive marriage or singleness as good gifts, good callings from God that are actually a means for living out our true and ultimate calling as God's people who have been set apart to live for his glory. See, marriage and singleness, they are both good gifts from God, but they're not ultimate things. Instead, they are means by which we get to live out our real true calling as God's glorifying people. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word and see how it needs to correct and shape and mold us and see how it's good news for our hearts this morning. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for our time together. We're so grateful. God, as we uh, study your word this morning, as so often this letter does, it confronts us, God. God, and your your word and your ways, they stand in in such stark contrast to the way our own world works, just as they did to the way the Corinthian world worked. And so, God, we need you by your grace to enable us to humbly come under the good authority of your word. God, correct us where we need it. Encourage us where we need it this morning. Shape us by your word and through the power of your spirit. God, we can't do any of that without you. I don't have what I need without you. We don't have what we need without you. And so, God, we're dependent on you. Would you meet us in our study of your word this morning? Help us to understand you and your ways more rightly. And God, by your spirit, empower us to live in line with your word. We, we need your help with that. We can't do it on our own. And so we ask all that, God, for your glory, for our good, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, before we dive into chapter 7 this morning, just a quick heads up. So normally, normally as we study, we're just kind of work our way through these books of the Bibles, just chunk by chunk as it appears. But chapter 7 is kind of one of those a little bit special chapters, and Paul's kind of like ping-ponging between a couple of ideas throughout the course of like 40-something verses. And so instead of just reading the whole thing in one chunk, what I'm going to do this week and next week is kind of divide up a few of the little sections and kind of pull out some of the themes that are there. And so as we read this morning, we're going to kind of jump between a little a few verses. Uh, the ones that we don't get to this morning, we'll get to next week. Don't worry, I'm not skipping over something. Uh, we'll get to it all over the course of the next two weeks here. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 6, and all this will be on the screen for you here. And again, we're going to jump around just a little bit. So um, verse 6 begins this way. He says, Paul again, writing to this church again about the topics of singleness and marriage together. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. He's talking there about being single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Goes on in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And this is the rule I laid out in all the churches. 
Was a man already circumcised when he was called, then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man circumcised when he was called, then he should not be circumcised. See, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And so each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Now about virgins there, again, he's talking about those who are unmarried or single. He says, I have no command from the Lord, not meaning the Lord doesn't say anything about it, but just that Jesus didn't specifically give a quote about this. He says, I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. And all you who are married are like, amen, right? What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if that were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is considered uh, concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way with an undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Like I said, uh, throughout chapter 7, what, Paul, what Paul's doing throughout the whole chapter as a whole is that he is a, he's addressing and correcting some of the Corinthian believers' misconceptions about marriage and singleness. And he has a bunch of different things to say about both of those topics, but, but basically it all kind of filters down into this one main idea. And the, the big idea that he's trying to get across throughout the whole chapter is that, that marriage and singleness are both Good gifts and good callings from God. Verse 7, right? He says, each of you has your own gift from God. One who has this gift and another has that. Verse 17, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation that the Lord has assigned to them just as God called them. Verse 26 through 28, right? He says, it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to women? Are you engaged? Are you married functionally? Then stay that way. That's good. Don't seek to get out of that. If you aren't, if you aren't engaged, if you aren't married, if you're single, don't look for a wife or a husband, right? But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. If the virgin marries, she has not sinned. He echoes these ideas in verses 8 and 9 and 36 through 38. We didn't read those this morning, but again, he, he repeats these ideas. And what he's saying again is that marriage and singleness, they are both good callings from God. They're both good things from him. And it, it's hard to understate how revolutionary Paul's words would have been in the first century, let alone in Corinth. You see, he was referring to both marriage and singleness not only as gifts, but as a calling from God. Verse 17, right? As the Lord has assigned to each one, each as he's been called. You see, the Corinthians, they saw both of these things. They saw marriage and singleness both as ultimately being about them. You see, in Corinth, you got married as a way to climb the social ladder, right? It was a status thing, a kind of a symbol kind of thing. 
And so it wasn't just about getting married, it was about who you married. And so you had to find the right person who could help you climb the social ladder. And it was all kind of a part of the strategic game in Corinth. And if, you, if that person wasn't helping you climb the ladder anymore, you just discarded them, right? People were just tools to be used in kind of the pawn to play the game of climbing the ladder. Likewise, singleness in Corinth, it was all about pleasing or promoting yourself, so you could give all the time you had to growing your business or to making a name for yourself. Likewise, we talked about last week, there were very, there were very limited limits on sexuality in Corinth anyway, but, but when you're single in Corinth, you are absolutely free. Just do whatever you want sexually. You have no bounds. You have absolute freedom. You see, like the Corinthians, I think we often tend to see marriage and singleness as about us as well. You see, we can tend to see marriage as being ultimately about fulfilling our personal satisfaction. It's a pathway to security for us or a way out of loneliness. We tend to see singleness as being about our personal freedom, about being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and sleep whenever you want to and however long you want to, right? And yet here Paul is saying that both marriage and singleness aren't actually about you. They're actually callings from God. You see, and they're not really about you. They're actually about him. They're not to be used for your own purposes, but for his purposes. That's what a calling is all about. You see, and when I refer to those things, marriage and singleness is calling, some of you are sitting here like, well, that, that calling can go straight to voicemail, and I don't check voicemail, right? <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even know the last time I even looked at my voicemail, right? I'm out, right? That calling, I'm out, Right? Maybe you're single and you really want to be married and the idea of being single for much longer, let alone forever, is the very definition of your worst nightmare. Maybe, maybe you're married and you have come to the brutal realization that marriage is way harder than you thought it would be. And it's not just like a sleepover with your best friend and all fun times, right? But it's actually really hard work to love somebody. And you're thinking, maybe I just wasn't cut out for this. Maybe marriage isn't for me. Maybe, maybe that's not my calling. Well, before uh, you send God straight to voicemail, let me, just, let me just help shape a little bit of that language about calling here before we do that. You see, Paul basically is talking about calling not as this permanent, undeniable, irreversible, divine fate, but instead he's talking about a calling as an invitation from God, as an assignment from him to live out his purposes in your life, in this season of life, for however long that season may be. And it's a season that comes from him. And we'll flesh this idea out a little bit more next week when we talk about marriage and some other kinds of things. But, but just to say this, spoiler alert, right? The way that you determine what your calling is is basically Paul says, ask yourself, are you single or are you married? And whichever one you say yes to, then that's your calling, right? It's not a, don't overthink it, Right? And again, this doesn't mean that if you're single, it doesn't mean you shouldn't desire to be married. In this passage and throughout Scripture as a whole, the Bible says, again, that the desire to be married is a good desire. It's a good thing, right? But what Paul's trying to, he's trying to highlight here is that, that marriage is not a prerequisite for living for the glory of God, right? It's not like marriage is varsity and singleness is JV, right? And you really got to kind of graduate to the higher level of marriage if you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to honor God. He's saying that both of these things are equal callings from God to be used not for ourselves, but for him. 
You see, and I just need to say this, unless you see it that way, whether you're marriage or singleness, unless you see either one of those things as a calling from God, then you'll never be able to live in those things. You see, you'll always be raging against God. God, why did you give me the husband or wife that you did? God, why won't you? Give me the husband or wife that I want. God, I can't stay in this marriage forever. God, I can't stay single forever. You'll always be raging against that unless you see that it's a calling from God. But more than that, it's so important that you see this. See, it doesn't just say that marriage and singleness are callings from God to be dutifully endured. He, Paul, Paul says that they are good callings. They are good gifts from God. You see, this was another way that Paul's words here would have been so wildly revolutionary. You see, in the ancient world at large, and specifically in Jewish culture as well, which a number of the Corinthian believers would have been Jewish in heritage, right? That, that being married was, was way highly elevated over singleness. And to be, to be single was almost even seen as a curse, You see, and a lot of this had to do with the way that the Old Testament talked about God's calling for his people. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and before sin even enters the story, you see how God makes humanity in his image, and then he commissions them. And he says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with people who love God and worship him. Later on, when God's forming the the Israelites, his own people, he calls Abraham and he he promises to bless him and to give him descendants that 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 would outnumber the stars in the sky, that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars. And God reaffirms that promise to Abraham's sons. And so from the very beginning, marriage and offspring were central to the kind of calling and blessing of God. That's why if you were a young man or a young woman, especially in in the ancient world, you got married as soon as you could. The idea of being single for any longer than like, any longer than you absolutely had to was absolutely out of the question. You didn't want to be single because the culture of God's people in the Old Testament equated blessings of God with marriage and with children. And that made sense in the way of the light the Old Covenant worked. The people of God would fulfill their primary calling through procreation, through having offspring, and you couldn't do that if you were single. But what we see is that the New Testament changes all of that, and Jesus specifically changes that. You see, we even see this foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 53, it's this famous messianic passage that's, that's foreshadowing the person and the work of Jesus and all that he would do to rescue and save God's people. And what's so striking about it is that in the, at, in the end of the, those, in the middle of that chapter, we read how the Messiah will be cut off from the land of the living. It's a phrase that not only refers to the Messiah's physical death, but, but even more so to him, his kind of his family name, his lineage being cut off. In other words, the Messiah is going to live and die as a single person. Yet in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says, Yet God will see his offspring and prolong his days. You see, God is foretelling in the Old Testament how his family will multiply, ultimately not through physical procreation, but through spiritual regeneration. You see, it's not going to be through babies being born, but through people being born again. Through faith in Jesus. And this totally changes everything. Don't miss this. It's so important that you see it. You see, in the new covenant, in the coming of Jesus, it would radically transform the picture of God's blessing and what it meant to be a part of his kingdom purposes. You see, it's, it's promised in the very next chapters, Isaiah 54. He writes, he says, sing, O barren one. 
Break forth into singing and cry aloud, for you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 5, he says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and who hold fast to my covenants, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Barren moms, eunuchs, single people, Don't worry. In the very Old Testament, God is promising you are not a dry tree. You are not left out. You are not hopeless for God's plans and his purposes. You see, because God's kingdom is not ultimately dependent on physical offspring, it's dependent on a spiritual offspring. You see, and Jesus comes along and he brings all these promises into fruition and he lives as a single man, perfectly bearing the image of God, never marrying and never having sexual activity and, and because he was not married. And, and so he, he, and he offers to the disciples this, what we refer to at the end of Matthew 28, right before he ascends to heaven, he offers to them, he, he gives them what we, what we refer to as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Therefore go. And make disciples of all nations. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like Genesis 1 and 2? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You see, the Great Commission is really just, it's actually really the Great Recommission, right? It's a, it's a recommissioning of God's people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with people that bear God's image and people that love him and worship him and glorify him. And the big difference here, it's so important that you see this, is that it doesn't depend on physical birth, but on spiritual rebirth, which means being at the very heart of the calling and purpose of God's people it doesn't require you to be married at all. Instead, it's a command that you can live out and join in and actively participate in, whether you are single or married. It's good news. You see, and so Paul is saying marriage and singleness, they are both good callings. They are equally good ways that we get to live for the glory of God in the situation and station he has given us in life for however long that season may be. And I just want to take a moment here to say that, that tragically I think what's happened in the church at large overall is that we've elevated marriage to this higher status than singleness, right? And that, like I said before, that marriage is kind of varsity and singleness is JV. And if you really want to be mature, then, then you get married, or worse, we, we treat singleness like it's the pandemic, right? And we just got to get our single friends vaccinated, right, against singleness, right? We got to get people married as quick as we can. You see, and that should not be. That should not be. Because God in his word says that to be single or to be married are both good callings from him. They are not gradiated. They are both good ways that we get to live for the glory of God and they each have their own challenges and they each have their own hard things about them, but they are both good. You see, and by God's grace, you see, we we can't say single people have an equal calling and gift from God and yet perpetuate a culture where single people feel like they're second-class citizens in the church. You see, and by God's grace, I think that we are are heading in a healthy direction with that at River City here. 
And we try to be very intentional about creating a culture where no matter what your marital status is, you can feel welcomed and included in the community here, right? We, again, so much of what we do here is, is rooted in relationships and small groups, and there's a main way we live that out. And our small groups, they're not based on life stage, so that you kind of have to fit into one component of your life, but they're open to everyone, and we have people from all different kinds of life stages, and people who are married and not married, and people who are single, and people who are uh, empty nesters, or people who are divorced, or all different kinds of things. And the community is a space where wherever you are, you can be a part of those communities. And we don't study books that just serve one group, we study the books of the Bible. And so God's word speaks to all of us, no matter where it's at. Additionally, in our preaching and teaching, we just try to preach through God's word. And we, that doesn't mean that we never preach topically or we never talk about family or parenting or whatever it might be, but it, doesn't mean, but it means that that's not the norm here. Because again, God's word speaks to all of us wherever we're at, and so we want that to be the thing that shapes us. Additionally, when we do seminars or extra teaching, we, Aaron and I are very conscious of the fact that we're not just trying to do parenting seminars and marriage seminars, because that's not where everyone is at. And so we're very deliberate about, even though we are having a parenting seminar this summer, it's been like two and a half years since we even did one of those. And there's lots of other things that we very intentionally focus on and offer because we don't want people to think that if you're not married, then you don't fit here. Or if you're divorced, that you don't fit here. Or if that you're single for whatever other reason, that you don't fit here because you do. We want to create a culture where we have friendships outside of our peer life stage groups. And so we have stuff like the women's book study and the guys are going to be playing basketball again this summer. We do all kinds of random stuff like that, right? Because wherever you're at in the community, we want you to feel like you can be a part of this community. And we need peer life stage relationships, but that can't be the only relationships that we have. Because God says as a church, we are a family together and that we each need each other in whatever space and stage we are at. And just to say this, we don't do this perfectly here, River City, and where we fail, I just want to ask for your grace and forgiveness in the midst of that. But as a church, I want to continue to call us. Let's be intentional. Let's be deliberate about creating a culture where wherever you are at, whatever your marriage situation is, that you are welcome here in this community. And there's a place and a place, there's a part and a place for you to be here. And so let's be intentional about that as a community. And so marriage and singleness, again, when we get back to our passage there, they're both good gifts and good callings from God to live for his glory. The problem in Corinth and in our own day as well is that we turn those things into ultimate things. We make them idols in our lives, and in the end, they keep us from actually living out our true calling to live for God's glory and his eternal kingdom. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 29 through 31. He, he says this way, he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Stephen T. Um just so helpfully writes, he, he puts it this way, he says, Paul does not advocate for indifference to the world or flight from it, since the as-if statements presuppose our involvement in the world. But what if these as-ifs do pose a question? What is it that molds one's life? 
You see, Christians must be mindful that marriage is not ultimate, that laughter and tears are not the last word, that inordinate love of things does not cause us to possess them, but rather for them to possess us. For everything we have, as we said before, is good. The problem is, is that it parades around as ultimate, promising to give us everything our hearts desire, but it's all a charade. And now that Christ has come, the jig is up. Everything is slowly but surely being unmasked for what it really is, good but not ultimate, not everything. I see Paul again, he's saying that marriage and singleness, they are both good gifts, but they're not the main thing. They're not the ultimate thing. The problem is we live like they are all the time. He's saying instead this world is passing away. And marriage and singleness are included in that. They're good gifts, but they won't last forever. Jesus is clear in the book of Matthew. He says we're not going to be married in heaven. See, the perspective allows us to enjoy both marriage and singleness as good gifts and callings from God, but not to be consumed by them. You see, when we see that they are merely a part of our ultimate calling to live for God's eternal kingdom and his glory both now and forever, then we'll be able to use them and enjoy them rightly. You see, and when you start to live with an eternal perspective, it changes that. It changes your mindset and it changes the way you look at your circumstances and your possessions and it changes the way that you look at marriage and singleness even. You see, the ultimate issue for Paul isn't whether you're married or single. The ultimate issue is whether you are fully surrendered to God in your marriage or in your singleness. Right? That's what he's getting at when in that section about circumcision. Right? He says, verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. He's saying it's not your status. It's not the external things about you that matter. It's keeping God's commands. It's being devoted to him. He goes on again in that last section that we read. He says, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs and how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. He says, the same is true of wives as well. He says, I'm, I'm saying this not to restrict you, not to say don't get married, but he says so that you might live in a right way with an undivided devotion, devotion to the Lord an undivided devotion to him. You see, our true calling is not to be devoted to ourselves or our singleness or to our spouses or to our marriages, but first and foremost to God himself. See, this is the true calling of single people and it is the true calling of married people. You see, Paul is saying, and he's just, I, just flat out, he's just saying, I'm just gonna shoot straight with you people. Marriage is hard. And there's a whole lot of extra concerns and anyone who is married for more than like 10 minutes is like, amen to that, right? It is hard and there are all kinds of things and when you're married, oftentimes you're kind of like, you're sitting there like, man, I kind of like to go back. It was way easier, right? When I just had to be in charge of myself, when the only person I had to get dressed and fed in the morning was me, that was amazing, right? The freedom, I can barely even remember what it was like, right? Paul's saying is, it's not that it's bad to it's not that it's bad to care for a wife and a spouse and, or to care for children. Those things aren't bad. Again, the Bible affirms the goodness of those things. But it makes our calling to be devoted to the Lord, it doesn't make that calling easier. It just makes it harder, Paul says. There's less distraction. There's more flexibility when you are single to be devoted to the Lord. 
But that doesn't mean that married people are off the hook. We're called first and foremost to be devoted to God. It's just harder when you are married because you have a bunch of other people that you have to care for as well. And just here's just a little side note for you. If you are not able to be devoted to God in his purposes when you are single, don't get married because it will be even harder for you to be devoted to him in marriage. It doesn't get easier. It only gets harder. Instead, practice devotion to God before you get married. Deny yourself and live for him now so that you'll be able to do that if and when you do get married. So whether you are single or whether you are married, the invitation as we study this morning is that we might all surrender our calling from God back to him. And to say, God, I want to live not for myself, but I want to live for you and for your glory in this season of life, however long it may be. I want to die to myself and my own desires so that I am able to live for your desires and your purposes, God. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't, it doesn't mean that you give up a desire to be married or to be single. It doesn't mean that you give up those desires, but what it does mean is that you choose to die to those things each and every day to say, God, whatever you have for me in this season, I will do. Lord, if you want me to be single, then I'm going to use my singleness and I'm going to use my independence and I'm going to use the freedom and the flexibility I have to serve you and to serve others and to make much of you, Jesus, to live for your glory and not my own. And if you're married, to say, God, I'm married. And yes, it is hard, but it is a good gift from you, God. Help me today and every day to selflessly give up my own desires and to live for the good of my spouse and to live for the good of my kids like those I'm called to care for so that the world might see God your selfless love in me for however long God might have you in those seasons see marriage and singleness are both good gifts and callings from God to live for his glory in different and unique ways And in both cases, hear this, in both cases, you cannot do it without God empowering you to do it in the first place. You cannot live as a married person for the glory of God without his calling and empowering presence in your life. And you cannot live as a single person for the glory of God without his power and calling in your life. You see, and Jesus is our example and our power for both of those things, for both living out lives of singleness and marriage. You see, he perfectly revealed what marriage pointed to. He perfectly revealed what marriage was all about. He is the ultimate image bearer of God, perfectly reflecting him. And he is the true and better bridegroom, the one who shows us what it means to be beloved by God despite ourselves. And he perfectly lived as a single man for the glory of the Father. He never sin and he always chose to live for God's glory and not his own and you need to hear this he did it for you he did those things for you if Jesus is just your example he crushes you because you never meet his standard but if he is your example but also your power if he is the one who not only calls you but empowers you to be the people he calls you to be then his life for you is an invitation to rest in his strength for you and to be empowered by his love for you, to live for his glory in the midst of your singleness and to live for his glory in the middle of your marriage. 
You see, if we want to be Jesus' kingdom people living for his name and his glory and the way that we approach marriage and singleness, we've got to see first that he did it for us. He's not just our example. He is the one who frees us from slavery to our own desires and the default ways of the world. And he empowers us. He, call, he empowers us to be the people he calls us to be. I hope you hear that as good news this morning. Wherever you are at, you need King Jesus' empowering presence to be able to fulfill his call on your life, in your marriage or in your singleness, to live for his glory. You cannot do it without him. And the good news is that in him you have all that you need. He satisfies. He fulfills. He, he's the thing. He's the well that doesn't run dry whenever you run to it. And so keep coming to him so they might be empowered to live for him each and every day. You see, every week when we take communion, that's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering. We're reminding ourselves of all that Jesus did for us, that we're reminding ourselves of his body and his blood, which was broken and shed for us, that we might be purified and empowered to live as his redeemed, renewed, image-bearing people, to actually be a people who lives for his glory instead of our own. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember all that he has done for you. How he died to his own desires. How he laid down his own rights and privileges. How he did it for you. And so that we might actually be able to live for his glory in a way we could never have done without him. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I encourage you, take communion as a remembrance of him. Do it as a way to remind you of all that he's done for you so that you might be empowered by him to live a new life unto him. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, if it's his glory that you are living for, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. If you miss the elements on your way in, you can find them during our time of worship on the table in the back, on the left, and on the right. And, and so we'd be grateful if you would take communion with us. But, but if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and if that's even something you want in the first place, then I, I just want to encourage you. I just want you to know you are so welcome here. In fact, this church was started so that that where you are at, you might find Jesus and be able to have a place in a community to explore that. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, communion is about remembering and celebrating all that Jesus has done. Instead, this morning, if you're still figuring out who Jesus is, I want to encourage you, come to him. Surrender yourself to him. All of us, the invitation is that we might surrender our singleness and our marriages to him. But maybe you're here this morning and you just need to surrender yourself to him for the very first time. You have always lived for your own glory and your own purposes. And Jesus is calling you to live for something bigger than yourself. And a purpose and a calling that won't fade. It won't just end with this physical world, but one that has eternal purposes. There's an invitation he extends to you this morning, and my prayer is that you might receive it. And so as we take communion and as we sing, wherever you are at this morning, talk with God. 
Again, some of you, maybe you need to surrender to him for the first time your whole life. But for all of us, the question is, I want to encourage you, ask God how he might be asking you to surrender your marriage or your singleness unto him so that it might be used for your glory. What is so hard about those things for you that he might be asking you to give over to him or to look to him for fulfillment and satisfaction and life in a way that you're looking for that in a marriage or singleness or some other kind of way? And talk to God. Ask him, where do you need him to empower your calling to marriage or singleness? He wants to empower you to what he has called you to. And you cannot do it without him. And yet with him you have all you need to live for his glory wherever you are at. And to that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you and we are so grateful to get to worship you together. God, we just humbly ask as we gather, might you empower us to be a community that whether we are single or married, wherever we are at, our chief desire is to be devoted to you, to give over our hearts and our minds and our desires and our passions, and indeed, Jesus, every part of ourselves to you. God, help us to be a community that creates an environment where wherever you are at, whether you are single or married, you can be a part of this body of believers and be a part of the greatest calling we all have to make disciples. Jesus, thinks that you renew and you restore and you change everything, and that you empower us to be the people you call us to, that there is no better place to be than inside your calling for our lives. And so we ask God for our good and for your great glory. You'd empower us to that. Amen.